episode 254, How to Achieve Outcomes That Matter to Patients. Today, I speak with Nadine Jackson-McCleary, MD, MPH, BSN. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Everybody knows about evidence-based medicine, especially evidence-based medicine around the use of pharmaceuticals, and especially in oncology. Provider and payer organizations, many of them, strive to standardize care pathways around that evidence-based medicine. Here is the thing. I've heard it said that doctors and patients at the point of care are not particularly interested in evidence-based medicine. What they want right then is medicine-based evidence. If this patient takes this medicine, what will the outcome be? Is there a name for this medicine-based evidence? Why, yes, there is. It's otherwise known as patient-reported outcomes, or PROs. And the high demand for meaningful PRO data has been clear across the spectrum of stakeholders, but especially when it comes to patients and doctors who are actually making treatment decisions. This demand is really acute for oncology patients and their doctors, where the stakes are high and adverse events are definitely not trivial. Pros can be collected for drugs that are already FDA-approved, but also for drugs in development. It's been said that a pharma these days who skips collecting pros in cancer drug development does so at its own peril. Here's something that Dr. Ethan Bosch said. He said, when I sit down with a patient to think about starting a new treatment, almost invariably, the first question that they ask is how they will feel with this product. Dr. Ethan Bosch, by the way, I interviewed in episode 157. He's the director of the Cancer Outcomes Research Program at the University of North Carolina. In that interview, you can hear about how Dr. Bosch and his colleagues found that by collecting patient-reported outcomes and acting on them, patient survival time improved something like five months. To put this in perspective, those drugs that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars that are coming out, they don't increase survival time that long. Let's bring this full circle. How is all of this relevant to evidence-based medicine? It's relevant because all of those evidence-based pathways that we're working on these days should lead to not better patient outcomes, in air quotes, They should lead to the outcomes that matter for this patient. And what matters is not some kind of universal truth. Patients at different points in their lives with different goals are going to have different ideas of what good looks like to them. We all know that what gets measured gets managed. So if achieving patient outcomes or being patient-centric is the goal here and we're not measuring pros, then we're not managing them either. Today, I speak with Nadine Jackson-McCleary, MD, MPHBSN. Dr. McCleary is an oncologist at Dana-Farber Institute and also an assistant professor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. She is currently working on a project to collect patient-reported outcomes and make them actionable. I interviewed Dr. McCleary at the Node Digital Medicine Conference in New York City recently. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you so much for having me. You know, why don't we just start out at the very beginning? We're talking about patient-reported outcomes here. What percentage of them are reported just kind of baseline across the country? Are we doing well here? 
We're not doing well, unfortunately. Our patients are reporting to their providers. Certainly, they tell their nurses how they're feeling. They tell their doctors how they're feeling. They'll tell their friends. They'll even put it on Facebook. And yet, as clinicians, we do a very poor job of reporting that ourselves. We will either misinterpret it or we'll underreport it. And we're doing that at a rate of about 50%. For patients who have cancer who are on chemotherapy, for example, there's data showing that we'll capture about half of what our patients are telling us about how they experience their treatment. So we'll miss important things like hair loss and nausea and fatigue and vomiting, things that some may argue we can't really take action on. But most of those you can tell we can do something about. And if we were able to capture that information earlier, we can take action earlier. And what is the reason for that? Is it just that physician visits are very short and you can't ask 50 questions and write down 50 answers in that visit? Or is there something else going on? There's some things that are lost in translation, a patient is describing their experience from their perspective, but we hear certain terms and we highlight certain things. We tend to, as clinicians, focus on things that we can take action on, things that are pretty straightforward to fix. There are uh, symptoms at adverse events that may be quite complicated or uh, things that we don't know if they're related to the treatments or interventions that we have taken. And it may be prove harder to get an answer or solution to them. But oftentimes, yes, the visits are short and our patients may take a while to get to what is essentially their biggest concern. And it is difficult for them to quantify that in the way we need to quantify it when we document. Our patients don't really have that language to share with us. And so they'll say, I feel queasy. And what they might mean is nauseous, but then you have to probe a little bit more to find out how much that nausea is affecting their life. We tend not to do that if we're moving on to the rash that we can see, for example. Yeah. And I could also see that it might be difficult for a patient to be able to prioritize even what is important. I mean, maybe they've had a headache, but should they even mention it? Because it is challenging. I've had patients tell me, you know, I know what I want to tell you, but I forgot the moment they enter the clinic room. If someone's not with them, patients will forget they're nervous or they're not feeling well. How am I supposed to remember the 10 things that happened last week? If they write notes, they may take notes in their phone, for example. That does tend to help. But usually you're not giving enough of a descriptor and the provider then has to take the extra steps to find out what's actually happening underneath all of that. And that's where I think direct patient report can really help us kind of break that translation barrier. Why does this matter? Why do we need to report patient outcomes? We are not with our patients at all times. Our patients know how they're feeling. They're the best ones to tell us what's happening between visits. They're the best ones to tell us how they're experiencing their treatment. And in fact, it matters because we learn a lot from that. We can intervene earlier. We can reduce ED visits, hospitalizations. We can improve not only the quality of life, but more importantly, the quality of survival. So being able to spend more time where and with whom you choose to, instead of with us, the provider and clinician team, I think is incredibly important and valuable, and it's meaningful value for our patients. It's largely patient experience. Yes. But then also I hear a little bit of reducing downstream costs. Absolutely reducing downstream costs. If we are able to target specifically what is concerning to our patients, we're able to intervene earlier and we're able to use the tools at our disposal. Many of these resources we have in our healthcare system, but we're not appropriately matching them to the patients that need them early enough. So those are the patients that will show up in the emergency department or show up to the clinic visit in distress. And we often say, if I had only known, I could have helped and intervene earlier. 
sounds like also there's a little bit of efficiency of care. Absolutely efficiency of care. So for us at Dana-Farber, we prioritize improving clinical efficiency and the way we deliver our cancer care. We also prioritize improving patient outcomes. And thirdly, we prioritize discovery and innovation. How can we leverage this information that our patients are sharing with us to be able to improve how they're experiencing their treatment overall? And is there any impact also on survival time? There is. So Dr. Bosch, Dr. Schrag, and others showed in a single institution study that patients who directly and systematically report on their symptoms live longer. They have higher reported health-related quality of life. They have higher overall survival. They stay on treatment longer, and they have less ED visits, less hospitalizations. And they added that this had minimal impact on the workflow of the clinic. So not a lot of phone calls were required to patients to help them manage their symptoms by doing this. We've just talked about four different ways that collecting patient-reported outcomes improves things from a financial value standpoint. Absolutely. We talked about patient experience. We talked about, you know, reducing downstream costs. Absolutely. I could see that there is a big delta yes. between desiring to collect patient outcomes and actually collecting patient outcomes. There is a big delta but I would say we started with a very small team. This was a team of essentially two people that has slowly grown over time. And now we have a larger team of about five dedicated people. I'm working on this part time. And yet with this small investment, we are seeing big returns on that investment. Our patients are engaged in this process. They're willing to participate. Our staff, the front desk staff, who are the first point of contact for our patients, are very excited that we're doing this work. Our nurses are engaged. They say, finally, we are getting the type of information that they have been able to leverage for years and years to be able to improve patient outcomes. But we're also able to pair that information with other critical bits of disease characteristics, of genomics data. We can pair that with ED visits and hospitalization resource utilization and the treatments that you're receiving and pull all that together to really make the best use of our time with our patients. So let's maybe kind of follow the patient journey here to yes. sort of understand exactly what you're doing. Yes. So you've got a patient. They have initiated therapy. Yes. What happens? So any patient who comes into Dana-Farber is asked to complete a questionnaire. If we use this uh, score system, zero to five for patients, particularly those on trials where we rate their symptoms and their signs of adverse events, your new patient, we're collecting information on your symptoms at diagnosis, on your risk factors for uh, genetic syndromes. We're learning more about your social status, who's with you, your health numeracy, your health literacy. Can you understand the information we're sharing and your perceived health state, your mental and physical level of distress, which we know is incredibly important to collect throughout the entire cancer care journey. Um, those patients' information is shared directly with their providers that they're seeing within moments of coming into the institution. And so that provider then could use that to be able to start the conversation about their diagnosis, treatment recommendations that are appropriate for that specific patient. The institution can use that information to be able to understand what patterns they're seeing for the population. If you are sharing that information between visits, you have the opportunity to do that if you're enrolled in the patient portal. And you can use any internet-enabled device, your smartphone, your laptop, your tablet, and you share that same information to your providers. The difference is your providers are seeing that through a notification system, and they then can review the information which is scored. So it gives you a sense of how severe or significant a symptom may be, 
and the provider then can choose to respond to that as per their usual protocol. In our institution, many of our office practices have nurses who manage that information and are reaching out to patients proactively to help guide them through how to manage their symptoms. But we're also participating in a larger research effort where we will be doing that more systematically. Patient comes in. Yes. They get a survey yes. on a tablet. Mm-hmm. It's Is it a long survey? It's a very short survey. These are 15 questions about basic symptoms, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, things that your provider should know about. And they answer that within five minutes to 10 minutes at most. We have information that shows our older adults are able to do this, as well as our younger adults. And we're expanding now to include patients who have limited English proficiency. So we're translating both language, but also culturally adapting it for a Spanish-speaking population first. And then we'll expand to other languages that are common at our institution. And they do this before they meet with the provider. It does not interfere in the clinic workflow. And it's really easy for our patients to do it. And it's meaningful. The way we use it in our clinic practice is that we review that information with our patients to make sure that we have agreement before we move on to the plan of action for that visit. You're collecting the information in the waiting room and then it goes into the EHR system. Instantaneously, within a second. So I've had patients sit next to me, answer a question, and I can see their response one second later. That's how fast it is. And there's no information stored on the device itself. So this is connected to the EHR through a virtual desktop instance via Citrix. And so we're able to see the information without the risk that if a tablet disappears, which we've not had any tablets disappear, but if there was any issue with a tablet, we would not lose the data that was provided. Did that also require sort of a change management approach with clinicians? It's different. It required a cultural shift in many ways. We come from, while we are very tech savvy and we like our Apple watches and our Android devices, in terms of our clinical practice as clinicians, we are very concerned and we tend to be late adopters. And so it took uh, myself as a clinical champion, another clinical champion, really working with together, not in opposition to, but together with our colleagues on all levels to make sure that we had a workflow that made sense to them, that did not interfere in their practice, but most importantly, did not belie the trust that patients have with them and that they have with their patients and that everyone felt confident that this information would actually be used in the right way. And can you aggregate this information and use it, say, for population health purposes? So currently, that's our effort now, is we have put together a data stewardship work group to make sure that the data could be leveraged for population health management on both the research, but also an operational side, as there may be different issues that you want to explore. We have used research to be able to test out some unique ways of delivering information and collecting information, for example, in populations who have low touch points with the healthcare system. So those patients who are on oral anti-cancer therapies who on average are seeing their providers once a month, what's happening with them between visits? We're learning a lot about that, but we're doing that safely within the research space before we explore that in routine care. But most of this is being done in routine care and it's being done with the support of our institution because we learn a lot about our patients and figure out ways that we can actually uh, intervene earlier 
and create some uh, pivots in what's happening with our patient's experience. Yeah, because I could see if you're collecting patient reported outcome with an individual patient mm-hmm. and you can spot, let's just say, meaningful symptom, maybe. Correct. You know, that is at the patient level. Yes. So I can definitely see that, you know, for an individual patient, their outcomes obviously are impacted, five and a half months impacted. Right. But you're probably able to see trends then. Correct. And then come up with more population level solutions that could also be more efficient. Absolutely correct. So this is a pretty straightforward example, but our patients report on insomnia, which turns out to be one of the most commonly reported symptoms, and yet a symptom that most institutions do not have a plan for. We have a researcher who has an excellent way to intervene on insomnia that has now been validated. This is a symptom that could be reported easily between visits because there's really no such thing as emergency insomnia. And yet we have not been able to pair those patients with this need to the resource that is readily available. Now we can do that without having to depend on our providers to remember that there's an insomnia intervention available for their patient. We have other examples to address pain, where we have our pain and palliative care specialty team ready to intervene and assist patients in management of pain. But our patients had to rely on their provider referring them to a pain specialist. Now we can look at those patients with unmanaged pain over a certain period of time and really check, are they really being referred to the appropriate resource and are they being referred early enough so we can minimize their distress? I could see that as an oncologist, there's a million things you have to remember. Yes. There's so many technologies that are accused of actually adding tasks to the plate of the clinician. This might legitimately remove some. It can. So one, the provider's involved because the questions that are asked are questions that the providers feel resonate with what they would want to know anyway for their patients. There are 15 common symptoms. They make sense. Just looking at them, they have face validity. So we're getting that information, but the provider does not have to remember, oh yes, I forgot to ask about neuropathy or I forgot to ask about anxiety. Some of the symptoms that we don't capture well, and we know we don't capture them well, we're able to capture them in this way. And even if you do not intervene for that individual patient, we still have the population health management data that we can start intervening for our population as a whole. Does this have any intersection with integrative oncology? I interviewed Glenn Sabin a couple of months ago. Yes, we have a fantastic complementary and integrative medicine team. If you are an astute clinician, you may remember that your patient could be referred for Reiki or for yoga or for acupuncture, for example, to address certain symptoms. But you may not remember that. And the patient being overwhelmed with their treatment schedule may also not remember to plug in with that resource. This provides a path that we can start to refer patients or at least say to them that there's a resource available do you want to take advantage of that based on what you're telling me? And so selecting out those patients who may have the greatest need. The tool that you're using collects all this data, Yes. which then there are individuals who are not necessarily point of care per se. Like yes. there's somebody who calls the patient later and says, hey, let's talk. Yes, we have the opportunity to do that. We're doing that now with a small subset, but our hope and our goal is to expand over the next year to include those directed referrals to those resources. Do you find that there's so much that needs to happen at the point of care that having these other conversations sort of separately, is it a con, a pro, neutral? It's a pro. Our patients tell us that they find answering a questionnaire in every clinic, asking them about their name and their reason for visit, is overwhelming and it's frustrating. Having a tool that could be leveraged by multiple different groups, not just their primary care team, 
but also those supportive resources that they do want to learn more about has been advantageous for them. And knowing that everyone has a peek into what's happening and actually cares about what's happening with them tells them that they're actually getting the total patient care that Dr. Sidney Farber mentioned when he opened the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and that many of us refer to as truly meaningful and value-based care. Okay, so let's talk about the barriers now. Yes. What have you overcome? Barriers. Um, (laughs) You know, one of the key barriers is that focus on late adoption. There's a, again, we're tech savvy and we love our technology, except when it enters the clinical space. And when we perceive that it's interfering with the doctor-patient relationship or the nurse-patient relationship. And I find by having both a multidisciplinary and highly functional team that includes clinicians at every level, includes our operation members at every level, we've been able to overcome that barrier. And so now we're getting questions about why aren't you working in our clinic and why aren't you offering this to us? And so we have a lot of requests now that we're putting into place because we've been able to demonstrate that we can do this as a team. So that's one barrier I feel we've overcome. The second is enrollment on the patient portal is still, it meets industry standard around 40%. It's not high enough to be able to have that meaningful match of resources and needs that we are looking for. And so having the tablets in clinic has been a huge help. We're able to get over two thirds of our patients participating without requiring that they're enrolled in the patient portal, but also kind of entices them that maybe they should enroll because they see it as now a potential way to communicate with their care team directly. So those are two of the key barriers. And I would say a third is the infrastructure, the how to do this. The evidence is there. The support is there. The endorsements for patient-reported outcomes is there. And thanks to Dr. Bosch, Dr. Schrag, and many others, it's growing. But we still don't have a clear how. How do we operationalize this? How do we put into place? What are the key resources that are needed? What's the cost? Those are the things that we're able to start working through as our implementation team grows. One of the things that you're also doing, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. is documenting very carefully, very carefully what the best practices are here and all the things that you just mentioned. So you can almost put together like a playbook. We are trying to put together a playbook and working with other NCCN institutions that are doing similar work in different ways, some integrated within the EHR, some outside of the EHR, to really share openly lessons learned. We feel very strongly that it's through that sharing and partnership that we are going to be able to move this field forward. And what we don't want to see is that we all kind of stick to our own little silos and we don't share this information because then we're all going to miss out on the value that patient-reported outcomes brings to the table. Does this have any impact in health inequality? It does. There is, I fear, a growing inequity in how big data is leveraged and who is included when that big data is leveraged and when algorithms are developed. And so in making sure that at the outset, our tools are deployed in a culturally specific way, in a language concordant way, is incredibly important. But there are other areas of health equity that we're addressing. I mentioned older adults being able to use this tool. Anyone who can use an ATM can do this. And so we are addressing our older adults by doing this. We also have access to patients who live at a distance from our institution. So those who are rural are able to participate. And we can also deploy tools that don't rely on a heavy um, or high level of health literacy or health numeracy. We can use a lot of visuals. We can use audio and video. And so we're capturing a number of patients in this way that provides, I think, an equitable 
way to deliver cancer care that we had not been able to do quite as well in the past. And I could see that that would be pretty meaningful because as everybody knows, you know, the most important number in healthcare is your zip code. And there's incredibly different outcomes between someone with exactly the same clinical symptoms or or clinical profile who lives in a mansion versus someone who lives, you know, on the wrong side of the tracks. Right. So there are a lot of requests for proposals around geocoding and health equity, geocoding and health IT equity specifically. And we're hoping to address that because of the population that we're serving, not just at our main campus, but at our six satellites and our companion campus as well. So we have a breadth of patients that we're going to be exploring within our local, local regional area. But then we're also a part of a much larger NCI Moonshot initiative led by Dr. Schrag and others, where six institutions are partnering in the South and along the East Coast up to New England that will look at a much broader swath of patients with a variety of different health needs who have lung cancer, GI cancers, or GYN cancers. And so we're able to capture those patients. And I think we're going to learn a lot. We're in our second year of that large study and three more years to go. But I think that information is going to become invaluable. Dr. McLeod, anything that I neglected to ask you? Why aren't we doing this more is a key question. And I think it requires a concerted effort. And I can't emphasize that enough. I think it's shocking to me that if we were talking about a clinical trial, we would have very clear and well agreed upon endpoints. And we have clear and structured protocols for how we conduct a clinical trial. This is no less important and it's no less critical to how we learn and improve healthcare for all patients. Nadine McCleary, MD, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.